Welcome to Tech Together's Founders Journey Series. In this series, we talk with the founders and leaders from the Canadian tech ecosystem building tomorrow's big companies. We learn about their journeys and the challenges they face while building a current business. I'm your host, Alex Norman, co-founder of Tech Together and partner at N49P. Today's guest is Matt Goldstein, co-founder of DealMaker. Uh, for people that don't know DealMaker, it, it, DealMaker is, is building solutions that streamline the capital raise experience for investors and issuers alike. Uh, they've had over 400 founders use their all-in-one platform. It's the best way to power your investment round forward. Um, Matt, can you please come up and join me? Thanks, Alex. Great to be here. Well, thanks for making the time. Um, just offline, we're both talking how we have small children. So it's sometimes in this, it's hard to get quiet to record from home with uh, small children. So I appreciate you could find the time. Um, would like to start with your life before DealMaker. Uh, you had an interesting career of a mix of being a lawyer. I, I assume you're from Canada because your education's in Canada, but then you were in New yeah. York, you were in Toronto, you were at startups, you were a lawyer. So talk us about the pre-deal maker life and like what, what you were exploring, what you're trying out. Yeah. So that's very observant of you, Alex. I did, um, I did move around a little bit as I, you know, have continually sought the like highest and best version of, you know, me and what I can do to uh, contribute. Um, right before a deal maker, the, the career I had been um, developing and for you know about 10 years before Rebecca and I started this company was as a practicing lawyer. I was in New York yeah. right when I came out of law school and spent the first half of my career there and the second half of my career north of the border or north, north of the wall, as sometimes <laughs> we call it. Um, and uh, you know, working as an advisor in the capital markets, helping clients navigate laws, regulations, rules, best practices, how to achieve certain outcomes and you know, over the course of that career was always thinking about, well, you know, given this knowledge that I have on the capital markets on both sides of the border, like what else can we do? How else can we create value? How else can we solve problems? You know, being an advisor is very rewarding in some respects, but it's other people's problems you're solving, right? It's not rewarding yeah. in the sense, for me, it wasn't rewarding in the sense of, being a protagonist, right? Uh, in my own kind of contribution yeah. to the world, it wasn't saying, it wasn't until I met Rebecca where we sat down and were able to say, listen, this is what should be in the world, right? As a company, this is the type of solution that should exist. And, you know, that act of defining a vision and working backwards from a plan, like what it would take to build it and grow it and, you know, if this is the outcome, what do we need to do to get here? That was the, that was the first time that I was really able to say, wow, like this is what I should be doing. Um, so, before that, it was, it was just like exploration. So, so I love that. And there's a few things I want to understand a bit better. So it sounds like, look, you know, from that side in, um, you're a partner, law firm, you're advising lots of clients. Um, but it sounds like even while you're doing that, and despite all that success, you knew there, you know, like you wanted to be the, you know, the main player, you felt like, uh, uh, you know, so what, what was driving that? Like, and what, you know, do you know, did you always feel like you wanted to start something or like, was it when you went to the legal profession, you thought that was it. So like, I'd love to hear how you went from, you have to be pretty motivated to become a partner yeah. in a law firm. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess it's a mix. I think, um, depends on when you ask me, I might have had different answers, right? Enough. Sometimes it's only when you look back, you can kind of see how dots connect, but 
you know, at the time, like if you go way back to, I went to law school in like 2005. So this is a long time ago, but you know, at the time I would have said, I don't feel like I have enough knowledge. I don't know how the world works enough. I'm not done learning. Right. Um, and I went to, I went to law school with the idea that I need more. I need to know more. I need a more specific skill. I can't make my mark on this world until I have like a starting point that's, you know, a little bit better equipped. And so, you know, in some respects, I went to law school to get that yeah. equipment, right? To get those tools in an arsenal so that I could set out on my journey. It was only after practicing for, and I, you know, I practiced in New York. I practiced at a small firm because I had a big firm. Like I, I did move around a little bit, always looking for the right fit. Um, and it wasn't until a little bit later in my career where I felt like I had enough knowledge. I had you know, been on enough transactions. I had uh, worked with enough colleagues. I had, you know, similar to what you're doing, I had talked to enough founders. Yeah. One thing Rebecca and I did when we were practicing together was we, we ran a startups practice and we interviewed founders and we asked them, how did you build what you built? And what were your challenges on the way? And I was always learning, right? And then there's a moment in time at which you say, like, I think we can, I think we can build something here that will have lasting impact based on our knowledge, right? And based on how we're seeing the market move. Um, and, and that, you know, that's why yeah. we launched DealMaker. Yeah, interesting. And so you, you met, you obviously were working with Rebecca before. Um, you know, did you guys decide to be in the same team and the same practice? Or how did you come together? And how did you guys know that you wanted to start a business together? Like, how do you know this is the right co-founder? Oh, well, I mean... If you know Rebecca, then I think you know the answer to that. Anything, anybody who meets Rebecca, I think would be immediately um, uh, struck by the energy and, and talent. Um, you, you know, you just get a vibe sometimes. I kind of think it's like how, you know, people decide to start a band together, right? You yeah. just know that there's some sort of a rapport that's going to make the output uh, more than the sum of the individual contributions. And, you know, I worked with Rebecca for... Um, I guess a good couple of years before we launched Dealmaker, and it was it was just very obvious the way we created value together made me better at the way I did it, and and I I hope she would say the same. Like the the collaboration really worked, um, and so you know we we had been in the habit of you know always thinking about how to provide better solutions, always thinking about how to bring technology into our practice. It was. Um, it was just really one more step beyond that to say, well, you know what the world could really benefit from. It's a, it's an online platform where, uh, where issuers can raise capital the same as, you know, running a sales campaign, right? Sell, selling shares yeah. should be as easy as selling shoes. And if you can go to Shopify and open an online store and start doing e-commerce, then that's how you should be able to do capital raising transactions. You should be able to open a store and have people come and, you know, market to them and run campaigns and build a funnel and make a sale. Like, like fundamentally it's the same thing. It's about winning trust. It's about following the rules. It's about having the right offering for the right audience. Um, and, and nobody, nobody had built that. So we did. So, so I love that. Like how you said, you should be able to sell shares like you sell shoes. Um, and it sounds like you were almost doing customer development for a couple of years, but What's interesting about your position is usually you see someone that's in the system, it's hard for them to disrupt the system. So how did you know 
this is like, you know, how do you know we could revolutionize it, take it online? What gave you the confidence? What were the insights? It's a, this is a time we've done enough customer development. We've spoken to enough startups. Um, we've helped enough people raise money. Was there anything in particular? Okay, we have to do it today. We have to do it now, or was it just a natural progression? No, I do think there. I do think um, innovation lives in a time and a place, right? Like there's there's context, and I think if you look at the way we brought capital raising to the yeah. internet, right, and the we, we the way we took an old process that was very you know, manual and cumbersome and offline and brought it online um, builds on a number of trends that were taking place at a particular moment in time. The first and the biggest is e-commerce, right? Yeah. Like you and I probably remember, you know, a period of time where like there was no such thing as making sales on the internet. And it, since we're talking about shoes, if you wanted to sell shoes on the internet, you'd like call Accenture who would custom build you a <laughs> website for e-commerce. Yeah. Right? That, that used to be, and maybe that was, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012. Along came Shopify and said, you don't have to do that anymore. You can just use my platform. I made one. Why? Because Toby wanted to sell snowboards online. Yeah. And there wasn't a platform where he could just do that. So he made one. And I think for us, you know, that that's definitely part of being in Canada, being founders in this space. It's impossible to, it would be foolish to ignore Shopify, right? Um, and so, you know, being able to see that company take off with its trajectory, I think was a helpful data point in us thinking about, well, can this really be done? Can this be done from here? You know, what would we need to do in order to achieve the scale of impact that Shopify has been able to, to achieve and, and um, you know, like all successes fertilize an ecosystem which lead to more innovation that that was definitely uh that was definitely a company we watched closely and and saw um as a success story that was um you know helping us visualize what we were trying to do so you and rebecca see the opportunity you you're ready to go do it you know what's you say we're gonna launch this thing we'll call it deal maker i don't even know if you had a name what's the first yeah. thing you did like did you go find someone to build it did you go raise money and yeah, what, what was the first step? Oh yeah, now you're taking me back to like 2016. So um, the first thing we did was on a whiteboard. The first thing we did was, and I don't even remember the conversation that led us to pick up a pen on a whiteboard, but, but there was a moment in time at which we sat on a whiteboard and said, listen, like this is how capital raise transactions should be done, like, yeah. right? You know, historically, it, it just a step back for founders raising capital, the, the traditional process used to always be you would, you know, you'd need a lawyer to draft some sort of subscription agreement or share purchase agreement. And you'd, you know, you'd look for the investors who wanted to or who were a good match for, you know, the stage of the company, if it was seed stage or pre-seed or whatever it is. And then you send them this agreement and they have to meet the eligibility and they have to be accredited investors or you know, some sort of other way of being eligible to participate because there's no prospectus. It's not a publicly traded stock. It's just a company. Um, and it's all done manually and it's all done offline. And, you know, the more investors a company is trying to bring in and the more investment opportunities investors trying to see, the more paper piles up and it piles up on the desk of a lawyer and it's not in any sort of digital form. So you don't get any information electronically about who's interested in the company and who's buying and who's not buying. 
And how much did they buy? And what else can you sell them? And what other things did they buy in their buyer's journey, right? So, so you know, in the same way, thinking back on retail and thinking about, you know, people who go in and go to a store and buy a pair of shoes and that, that store doesn't have any information about them or their address or what promotions to offer them. It seems crazy now. Yeah. Now we have e-commerce and now, you know, like if somebody comes onto your site and buy something, you know who they are, you know what they like, you know what else they might buy. Um, you might try to target them with your advertising. You might try to provide value for them with a newsletter. You might try to appeal to them with an Instagram. Um, and so the world has really changed based on the way technology has allowed it to change. And for us, that was very inspiring. Cool. So you drew the, you see so again, you drew the you know, sort of idea yeah. and the process and then, okay, you've got this idea. Then how do you put the company? How do you start the company? How do you put it in reality? Like, did you use your own platform to raise money? Did you go get? Oh yes. Yeah. We all so, so, so like, so yeah. So I guess you had to get someone to build it. So how did you get someone to we build did. it? The first thing we looked for was a partner, right? Yeah. We knew what we were contributing to the business. We knew what the business should look like, what the technology should do, but we're not engineers. So we looked for a partner who would, um, and I think it's, you know, true of a lot of things when you're setting out to, to build something or to do something or to achieve something, you know, the question isn't necessarily what you need to do next. It's like who you can get, who will be responsible for a whole, you know, range of decisions in executing a vision. So, so we were always people first, who are the right people to help us on this journey? What responsibilities will we need taken care of and you know a lot of stuff we do ourselves we had legal training i incorporated the company i didn't need the, you know external counsel for that you know in the first you know early days where there's annual filings and hst and you know payroll and all that stuff it, it, it's a question of who are you going to bring in to you know handle the responsibilities that need to be handled if the company is going to go from you know, a point, point here all the way to where it should be on its trajectory. Yeah. So, and, and then how'd you find these partners? Um, that's a do you remember? Really good question, Alex. I do remember you're taking me back a long time. Like, honestly, maybe some of this comes from my legal training, right? Like how do you do anything in law? Yeah. The, the, the first thing you do as a transactional lawyer is try to think about an analogous circumstance and try to find a precedent that you can work from. So a lot of the times, right? If you think about what are the competences I need in a person in order to achieve certain outcomes, like I need an engineer, I need him to build, I need him or her to be able to build a piece of software, you know, that does X. Well, what's an analogous company, right? Oh, Shopify. Okay. Well, what does their CTO have on, on his or her resume? They know, you know, these programming languages, they have this amount of experience. They have, you know, they, they've, they've written their story with like a lot of information that shows exactly what they've done. If they've written a good, you know, CV on LinkedIn, then you can see exactly what they've done in order to put them in a position to do what Toby needs them to do in the early days of Shopify. And like, that's the roadmap. So, so if I look at five e-commerce companies and I look at the CTOs and I look at what they have in common on their resumes, that'll give me a bit of a picture of the person I need to look for. And like LinkedIn makes that really easy. <laughs> so I, so I love that. That looks like a huge advantage um, from your legal background is you knew what you want to start you saw the opportunity. You had a methodology of how to thinking of recruiting and how to build. Was there 
any disadvantage coming from, you know, with a law of practice or any challenges you had at the beginning where there was a gap you didn't expect? Um, probably, you know, like all yeah. things, you know, I'm me and I'm formed a certain way and my experience leads me to think a certain way. And I think one of the real um, harmonies between Rebecca and I is like, we, we break out of group think all the time we're, we're, we, we're, you know, we're, we're a voice on the shoulder that can help bring a conversation all sides that it needs. Um, and so, you know, sometimes I wonder if I look back at my legal training and think, well, I was, you know, formed and trained to be, to spot risks and to be um, systematic in eliminating them. And I think that's like, that doesn't work in a startup. You have to accept some level of risk and, and it's more about managing risk and saying, well, there's a duration of time in which we're going to take some risk because, you know, we, um, with our bugs in the product or, you know, we don't have a head of customer success and, you know, emails aren't going to get answered or there's, you know, for whatever particular challenge there may be, I think, um, I think there's always going to be some trade-offs that you do in your head, right. Or maybe on your fingers in real time of like, this is the fire I'm trying to put out. I'm talking about the early days, right? Yeah. This is a fire I'm trying to put out now. It means these other fires are just going to burn, yeah. but I think that they're not going to burn the house down. So I'm going to let them burn on the level. And then, you know, I'll systematically switch my focus from one to another. That That's very hard to do as a lawyer. That's very anti, you know, yeah. legal. Legal yeah. is about... Legal is Crossing about, the T's and dotting the yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, You got it. 100%. That fire has to be addressed with all the other 10 fires. But there's five, so that, no fire allowed. Yeah. No, no fire, fire allowed. allowed. Yeah. You know, uh, so, so, so you, you get, you get the tech, you get the product built, you go, I guess, sounds like you were the first customer you, you raised. It sounds like you raised the first round using your product and you're now market. How do you, how do you basically, you know, was there resistance to this market? Was this, cause it's a new way, you know, of all the risk you get putting myself in a founder's hat, like, you know, you're taking a lot of risk with starting a business again. And I think founder's job at the beginning is to sort of eliminate risk from a business and now was there a perception this is a new way of doing something? This is a new risk. Um, how do you get your first customers? How do you go to market? How do you, you know, cause you're now at, I don't know, 400, 500 plus deals done, but I imagine the first few, how'd you get those first few deals? Yeah. And, and what's interesting is if you look back at them and what they were looking for in using the early versions of the software, it's very different from what, you know, okay. today's customers are looking for. So we're solving slightly different problems. The products evolved. Right. Yeah, I'd love to hear both what was then sure. and how you got to what's now. So, so the, the initial use case, if we go back to like version, you know, 1.0, it yeah. was, there's too much paper in capital raising transactions, let's eliminate all the paper, right? So, you know, try to picture yeah. for yourself, you know, the combination of electronic signature with a tracking table that'll tell you in real time who's opened, who's happened, right? In, like an early version of a yeah. CRM. So companies- Founders raising capital, 10 people have been offered the opportunity to participate, who's open, who's signed, who got stuck, who paid, who hasn't paid. That was that was version one, right? Like a yep. workflow, workflow solution, right? It was about eliminating errors, it was about eliminating costs, it was about, you know, Fishes. bringing bringing transparency and collaboration into something that was like very opaque in a black box. Um, the founders and uh you know sometimes it's the cfo or sometimes it's the um 
you know, it's, it's, it's a board member, whoever's leading the capital raise, right? Yeah. The, the, the problems they're trying to solve and what they're looking for the software to do are very different in early stage companies than they are in, you know, in more mature companies or more substantial yeah. companies. Customers today, like we did the Green Bay Packers common stock offering. And, and so did. was that version 1.0 or is no, that? No, 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 no. That's, so, so, that's so, so today's then, version. Yeah. So, so what is today's version? How'd you get from that version? Yeah. To, and then tell us about the Green Bay Packers. You know, I, I'm sure yeah. everyone wants to hear about that. So yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, today opening a store on DealMaker is like opening a Shopify store. You have all yeah. the functionality to track tens of thousands of leads. Like you build a large funnel and you have analytics that'll tell you who's, you know, who's more likely to complete and who's, you know, yeah. going to need to be engaged with a little bit more. You can render it campaigns, you can SMS, you can, you know, really create relationships at scale using the technology. Um, and when we did the Green Bay Packers deal, it was like 300,000 purchasers came into the funnel in the first 24 hours and they, so, so, so what, what, what were the green Bay Packers looking for? Were they looking literally for a platform to sell their shares? Yes. Of the stock, like, a, yes. like a product. So yes. they want, so, so I guess is your current customer more someone with a community or who are they just trying to raise? Are they trying to raise from the community? Like what's the yeah. solution? Who's your customer now? And what are they looking for? Yeah. So, so, so we're now in an era where, you know, every customer, every Every brand out there has a community around it, whether it calls it that or not, but it's got an Instagram following. It's got a newsletter that it's reading, like you and I were talking about at the beginning yeah. of the call. It's, it's done something to you know, cultivate the world around it and get them engaged. And, and, and with us, that community is a source of capital, right? 99 out of 100 companies, Fortune 500 companies don't even realize that. <laughs> so, so the Green Bay Packers knew that and they knew their fans would put money in given the slightest invitation, right? And they've done that a few times throughout their history. They're the only, only NFL team yeah. to have sold shares to the public. But I think there's a world in which every major brand that wants to bring its community closer offers them a chance to be owners. And so our customers today look a lot more like that. I mean, there's two yeah. big use cases, but, but you know, they either have a community and they're turning that into a source of capital that's the Green Bay Packers use case, or they're going to build a community online because they're bringing a new product, they're bringing a new, um, you know, they're 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 an innovation-based company. They're bringing a new, you know, biomedical drug, or they're bringing a robotics or a drone, and they're 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 online bringing traffic in for their product every day anyway. So all they're doing is leveraging our invest now button to you know turn potential customers into a source of capital as well. And so how do you get from that version one to current version? Was this the you know product roadmap all the time? Was this a vision day one or did you, was it, you know, tell me about that journey. Yeah. So, so going back to version one, a lot of the core functionality in the platform today was in the product in version one, but, but the, the story is really one of augmentation and building out and, you know, it kind of reminds me of if you ever use if you ever played around with HubSpot. We were early yeah. HubSpot users, but HubSpot started with a certain set of functionality, and over time, it developed brand loyalty, and customers were using it every day. So it kept adding modules, and that's basically what we did, right? So we had the kind of the core tracking table, payment processing, and we just kept adding modules. We added the marketing module, we added the service hub, we added the engage functionality. 
right? We, did, we augmented the payments, um, uh, payment processing tools. You can pay on credit card, you can pay with ACH, you can, you can wire and it'll reconcile in real time, you know, where the money came from and which account to attribute. Um, so, so yeah, so, so, so it, we never, we never, um, it's not like Slack where we were building one thing and then realized actually yeah. we should just do this other thing. Um, the, the, you know, the final, not that everything's ever final, but you know, today's version has a lot of the core that was started in the initial version. And then, and then we just augmented and, yeah, so and built on top. The core functionality was right. And it's just been, it sounds like it's yeah. been an expansion and making more robust. Exactly. And, you know, we're talking about raising funds. We're talking about, you know, I don't know if you want to call it crowdfunding or, but we're talking about selling securities. And, you know, I, I unfortunately, I have a bit of experience with this. Um, you know, I launched, helped launch Angels in Canada. Oh, yeah. And, and I think about regulations and behavior and what changes, like, could you imagine you couldn't have done this in like 2000? So, what, what, what made it possible, both from a regulatory perspective and from like a mindset perspective? It sounds like people yeah. realize that, that there's a customer base willing to finance. That's one of them. But what else? change that lets you do this okay so there's probably three right and okay. i think we already talked about mindset you know e-commerce made people realize like buying things online is pleasurable it's enchanting it's engaging it's easy it's fun it's frictionless it's it's like the way to buy things so so that happened that's a big part of you know our story is that you know contrast a traditional way to raise capital with a modern buying experience that's online and and it's night and day so so that's one um uh, regul regulatory wise, yeah. uh, in 2012, the U.S. passed a landmark piece of legislation called the Jobs Act, which was all about crowdfunding, right? Yeah. Kickstarter, Indiegogo a little bit later, but Kickstarter had um, been a pioneer in helping people realize there's an opportunity to use a community to fund a business in a, like a project uh, funding kind of way. Um, and in 2012, U.S. Congress passed the Jobs Act, which made you know, equity crowdfunding um, available. And, and the, um, there's a series of uh, augmentations and adaptations over the time of that initial 2012 set of legislation that um, made it more and more accessible to the general public. Yeah. Uh, easy to start a intermediary that sells securities on behalf of issuers to the public. So a number of regulatory changes happened that unlocked the direct crowd-based relationship within issuers, the, the relationship between an issuer and the crowd. Um, and that was a big, that was a big driver in our business. I can talk a little bit about that if you want. Well, I'll, you know, maybe I'll take it a, a, a direction and relate that. So now the rules have changed and it sounds like, you know, crowdfunding is, you know, like you said, there's a bit of a community aspect to it. So how does this change the type of people or the type of companies that could raise? And what makes someone successful using DealMaker? I imagine not every company can go raise funds. Like, you know, and it's, it's there's something, there's a probably a right approach or right type of company you can raise and take advantage of the changes. So who are they? Like, what's this different than like, you know, like we'd love to know what makes someone successful using your platform. Yeah, I mean, I'd be interested in hearing your views at a more general level, what makes a company successful? Because I'm willing to bet it's not that different, right? At the end of the day, bringing innovation to market, you have to do a couple of things right. And so like anybody making any sale has to do a couple of things right. You have to have, you have to identify who's going to be a customer. Yeah. 
right? You have to treat them with enough respect by pricing what you're selling appropriately, right? By communicating with them in a way that honors them, right? Yeah. By being transparent about what you're doing so that, you know, people can really, you give them a chance to believe in you. Um, and anybody who's doing that successfully can build a community because anybody who's doing that successfully can win trust and can gain followers. And anybody who can do those things can raise capital with us because at the end of the day, it's just the same thing. Selling shares or selling shoes is the same thing. It's sales. Yeah. So, it's interesting, but I, you know, I'm curious if it's slightly, you know, there is a different mindset. Like I think there's, let's call it capitalism, I don't know, 5.0 or whatever version we're in. Like, like I think going back to the changes with crowdsourcing and Kickstarter and the web is I think there's much more companies that are started off that are much more embracing community. They're not selling commodities, right? Like maybe you go like if run it, let's pick on running shoes, like Nike sold into community. But if you go back 10 years before Nike, people were just selling shoes. They weren't selling inspiration. So is it, is it companies that understand community and brand and, you know, or like if somebody's selling, I don't know, widgets, can they succeed in on dealmaker? You think, can they raise? So, or do they, is, so I, I, I think that's what I'm talking about. Like, I think 10 years ago, companies were building brands, right? Yeah. I think yeah, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but like if you go back 40 years ago. Yeah. Like, I guess when you're talking about commodities that, um, uh, you know, it doesn't matter who's, but I even push on that. Like, Toilet paper, you know, yeah. toilet paper is like as commoditized as it get, but like there are brands and people go to the store and yeah. they see one and they choose that brand because for whatever reason they trust it, right? How did that brand win their, you know, what is it, Royale? I don't know. You guys, you have small kids. Charmin, probably, I guess. Yeah, uh, right. So, that, right. That's the one I could, that's, resonates with me. And for some, they always have kittens, like yeah. Cottonelle, I think is another one. Anyway, too. right. To be so, honest, it's Kirkland in my house, but that's because we go to Costco, but that's a brand. Okay, yeah. that's also a brand. Yeah. There you go. So, so the fundamentals of winning trust and being recognizable and telling a story that resonates in some, you know, with some people, I think those have been there for a long time. And I think any any company that has those fundamentals down will be successful raising with Dealmaker. Like, not in every case. You have yeah. to price it right, and you have to hit the market at the right time. And there's there is you know, real rigor to it. It's not just like, oh, I'm going to raise capital. Great. Let's do it. A hundred million dollars came in. There, there is some real, um, you know, there's some real hallmarks of success, but, but at that, at that fundamental level, we say anybody who can build a brand, anybody who can build a community can raise capital with us. It's the, it's fundamentally the same thing. So I'm curious, like if you were to say, you know, obviously Green Bay Packers are one extreme and then like, what are other examples of companies that have raised just to give an idea to the audience, like, you know, who's, who's done it? Yeah, I mean, we have some of the case studies on our website, so okay. I, I won't rattle them all off, but but like Miso Robotics is a really interesting yeah. one. Miso Robotics is a very innovative company that has a robot that flips hamburgers, right? Um, and they've been very active in telling the world what they're doing and releasing content and, you know, talking about their commercial plan and showing the, you know, versions of the, of the innovation and um, really bringing people in so that they can feel that they're, you know, part of the creation of something new and everybody gets that application. Everybody's flipped a burger, right? Yeah. So, so they're, they're a story I like to talk about a lot. Monogram Orthopedics is another one that I think is really interesting because they are now um, getting ready to list their shares on the NASDAQ. Wow. And, you know, we've known those founders for a long time. They've done the entirety 
of their community creation online, right? And so they've gone from, because there was a time where I think people used to think of crowdfunding as, um, you know, very uh, esoteric or very, you know, marginal or, you know, only certain companies fit that mold. And maybe that's why you asked me that question of yeah. what type what type of companies could do it. And I think it's becoming much more mainstream, right? So, so Monogram is a great example of a company that built its community online, was true to that community, returned to that community raise capital, and is doing an IPO on NASDAQ with the capital funding, the public listing coming in through that same online community that they've been building through the, um, through the online crowd raises. I love that. Like, yeah. like maybe let's talk about positioning too, because you know you sure. talk about crowdfunding and like again, you think of Kickstarter or um, you know Indiegogo. So imagine like a lot of you know imagine you're, there's still lots of education needed in the market, and, and it's it's a and people have a hard time understanding different positioning. So what's unique about your positioning, and how does that help you? Like yeah, like you know, just I'd love to hear in your own words. And and was that always obvious from day one? About our positioning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's very helpful. So, so look, in raising capital online comes in two flavors broadly, yeah. right? There's a whole bunch of um, uh, marketplaces out there, right? Start Engine. Yeah. I mean, AngelList, I think in some, right? You talked about AngelList earlier. Like, yeah. You can scroll AngelList and find something to invest in. Um, so the marketplace model that's made its way by you know that double-sided act of trying to match people together, trying to have you know products to sell and have buyers for those products, like that's the Amazon of e-commerce, right? Yeah. Um, um, where a whole number of products can just list on those sites, and people browsing those sites might find one to buy. We've been very different. We're the we're the other flavor. We're the Shopify flavor, right? You can go on DealMaker. You can go on Shopify. You can go on DealMaker. You'll never see anything to buy. Yeah. Right. What you'll find is a technology that will put the the brand itself front and center on the web and give the brand all of the tools to build its own community. And so that's been a big differentiator for us, right? You can go on DealMaker, you won't see anything to buy, but what you'll find is a technology platform that will put the brand front and center. And anyone who buys shares from the Green Bay Packers is logging yeah. in through DealMaker and actually making the purchase through DealMaker, but they don't know that and they don't care, right? They're, they're transacting directly with Green Bay and Green Bay has decided to use our software to power that relationship. Yeah, so I, I love that. that It's a platform to enable you to, I guess, capture interest that's already there from your community. Either interest that's yeah. already there or, or at least gives you the chance the tools. to build your community yeah. and it's yours, right? If you're, I mean, like, again, selling shoes. If you put your shoes on Amazon, yeah. Right. Those buyers aren't your buyers. They're just buyers. Like it's, you know, I'm yeah. on Amazon. They're, they're shop yeah. But yeah, I get it. It's like a shopping mall. Yeah. But and, hey, when you, when you put your own site on the net and you're, you know, Alex's shoes and you're driving traffic to Alex's shoes and you're saying invest in Alex's shoes, that's your direct relationship, right? You're, you, you own that investor community. They're not, you know, in a marketplace looking for a bunch of stuff to buy. And maybe Alex's shoes is one of them. They're only yours. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, I, I get it. It's like so, like Allbirds. You know, they weren't on. It's like the equivalent of Allbirds. You either can be an Amazon or you could be have your own site, and they wouldn't yeah. use Shopify. And you know, I guess yeah. So that that I love that positioning. Yeah. Um, now I gotta ask you about the current market. You know, the media tends to either write everything's rosy in the media or everything's horrible. And we're in a market where the perception of you asked to imagine an average investor on the street. 
and maybe lots of founders that it's a horrible time to raise money. Um, you know, or it's a difficult time is a better way to put it. Um, what advice or what's your perspective on the current ability to raise money for companies and what advice would you give to founders that are going to raise right now? Yeah. So I have a bit of a different perspective from what, you know, the general kind of media narrative seems to be. I think there are, look, there are clearly markets that are sentiment driven, right? Oh, there's a war. We're going to pull back. Stocks are going to fall. Oh, there's bank, you know, turmoil. We're going to pull back. Stocks are going to fall. Those are very sentiment driven markets where the performance of individual companies is really taken down or taken up by general tithe, right? If you're a founder building your own community or turning your community into a source of capital, then like that, that's not as sentiment driven. That's not as tied to general trends in the stock market. It may not even be tied to trends at all. It may be much more related to groundwork that you've laid over the past six months, 12 months, 18 months in terms of have you been delivering what you say you're delivering? How have you been, you know, how have you been engaging with a prospective audience and letting them know what you're up to and building relationships and, you know, what is your track record? And all of that is much longer term and, and you know, in, in, in many ways independent, right? So if somebody's gonna, you know, gonna buy from Monogram in their current reg A, it's not because the general stock market is up and they were scrolling a site and also found this to buy. They've been following Monogram, right? They've been listening to the founder talk. They're buying from that CEO who they've been tracking for a while. And so, you know, founders have been coming to us with no real change in, you know, when I talk about our pipeline or, you know, the number of yeah. listings that are hosted by our platform, they've been laying the groundwork for a long time. They're continuing to perform well on the platform. Um, and so, you know, we're very excited that, you know, even now with the disruption in Silicon Valley, like I do think it makes people think a little bit more creatively about how they're going to raise capital. And that's very good for us because, you know, while the traditional way of raising capital and going to VC and getting funded will always be attractive to some founders, um, when that tack turns off a little bit, doesn't mean they don't have to raise. They still have to raise. People still have to build yeah. a company. And if they're the right fit to build a community online and to turn that community into a source of capital, then they're going to come to us. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's my view. And um, I'm very excited about, you know, our, our short, medium and long-term. And then talking about the long-term, what's the long-term view, you know, what the success look like, what's the next few years look like for DealMaker? Yeah. I think the long-term is the same outcome that e-commerce achieved in, you know, retail commerce, right? Like a significant portion of capital formation is online. That's what I think, you know, that's what I think the trajectory is for the space. And as the market leader in the space, we have to play a big role in moving the space in that direction. But, but, you know, we stand to benefit from, from a tide or a trend in our direction where, you know, five years ago, this was zero. Five years ago, nobody was buying shares online, right? We ourselves have powered $2 billion worth of online commerce, uh, online capital formation commerce, yeah. sales sell securities. And so, you know, we can talk about whether it's like 10 billion or, you know, 100 billion or a trillion. And, and, and all of that is, nobody, no one really has a crystal ball, but I do think over time, more and more of the capital markets will continue to transact online. Interesting. And then I'm going to take it to two high level questions to wrap up one, you know, what do you wish you knew when you started? Like what was the biggest lesson, personal lesson or, you know, 
in, you know, surprise or insight you got from building DealMaker? I mean, look, I'm different you yeah. know, now than I was five years ago. And I've learned a lot about, yeah, I've just learned a lot of skills that I didn't have before. And I've learned a lot about uh, managing people. And I've learned a lot about leading. And like, frankly, a lot of it comes from Rebecca. Um, so one thing I have a much better handle on now that I did not have five years ago is how far you can go as a team if you set people up for success and like step back and give them, you know, give them the scope to run. People will, will run very far and run very fast on belief. If you mm -hmm. can inculcate proper belief, right? Uh, if you can get people believing in what you're doing, you can get very high levels of performance. And if you get out of their way. Is right? that easy? No, not for me. So, so I, I don't think it's for any founder. So how, how did you learn to get out of the way? Um, yeah, a lot of this, a lot of this, I just have to give credit to Rebecca for, she has very, very strong leadership instincts on, you know, how to set targets for people and, you know, make sure that they carry the responsibility of hitting them. And one way to give them that responsibility is to, you know, step back and, you know, create space for them to step up into, um, so, so there's lots of books on this stuff too. I mean, you know, whether they're OKRs or a different way of, you know, using target setting to make sure people know exactly what they're doing. But, but I think, you know, high, high standard of clarity, high levels of clarity, um, giving people very clear expectations, a very clear understanding of what outcomes they're responsible for. It's very hard to do, but if you get good at that, that I do think it sets you up for a very high level of high levels of performance, which is, it's kind of dumb because, you know, even five years ago, I would have been able to say as a team member, that's what I would have wanted from a manager, but, but, it, but, but it was hard to put into practice as a manager, you know, setting up other teammates. Interesting. And then yeah. I, th I, I think this last question will be a bit easier. Um, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? No, oh, Matt at dealmaker.tech. But but um, we're, we try to be very accessible to, you know, inquiries. We've got FAQs on the website. We've got an intake form on the website, dealmaker.tech. We, we try to, um, you know, we try to educate the public. We try to let people know, you know, what we're seeing and, 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 and give them a, a chance to see some of the successes of others on the platform. So I would just come to the website, dealmaker.tech. And I imagine also if you have, I feel like you guys are still hiring. Is that right? Um, depends for who, I mean, look, yeah, we're, yeah. we're in growth mode. We're a growth company. We're, we're managing, you know, we're managing within the parameters of, you know, the targets we've set for ourselves for this year. So, yeah. so I don't, there's not a big hiring spree, but, 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 um, we are growing, we are anticipating growth and we are planning for the growth. So, yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to the site, you can check that out. Um, Matt, thanks so much for sharing your time and your insight. Um, I'm actually very excited to see the future of you know, online, online share purchases or capital formation. Um, yep. People are listening. Um, if you like this, you found this useful, please forward it, email, you know, the link to the, the podcast to a friend. And if you want to know more about what's going on in the Canadian tech ecosystem, you can uh, sign up for our newsletter at techtio.org backslash newsletter. Uh, thank you for listening. Thanks, Alex.